This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Dr. Craig, give us what we're going to do today is we're going to have a dialogue about, it's sort of an open-ended, friendly conversation about the Kalam cosmological argument. So what I thought was best is if we start with just a short summary presentation from Dr. Craig of what this argument is, and then at that point, we'll jump into dialogue. Scott will have, he's got some objections to the argument and we'll, we'll run through okay. some of those and just have a great dialogue. So Dr. Craig, why don't you start us off and give us that summary of the, of the Kalam? Certainly. Thank you, Cameron. The Kalam cosmological argument is a very ancient form of the cosmological argument that goes back to the efforts of early Christian commentators to refute Aristotle's doctrine of the eternity of matter. And they developed various arguments for the finitude of the past. These um, arguments were then taken up into medieval uh, Muslim theology when Islam swept across North Africa and evolved into a highly developed uh, argument for the finitude of the past. The name of this theological movement in Islamic theology is Kalam. And so I dubbed the argument that was so characteristic of this movement, the Kalam cosmological argument. It was then bequeathed back to the West um, through the intermediary of Jewish theologians and became a subject of hot debate, uh, finally being um, ensconced in Immanuel Kant's first antinomy concerning space and time in his monumental critique of pure reason. The argument, as stated by one of its greatest medieval proponents, Al-Ghazali, is very simple. It basically has three steps. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Uh, or alternatively, an even more modest version of premise one would be to say that if the universe began to exist, then the universe has a cause. Premise two is that the universe began to exist. This is the crucial premise of the argument. Medieval thinkers offered various arguments against the possibility of an infinite temporal regress of events. And in my own work, I've attempted to defend two such arguments against the eternality of the past. In the past century, however, we have found dramatic empirical or scientific evidence for the finitude of the past, both in contemporary cosmogony, as well as in the study of the thermodynamic properties of the universe. Both of these fields of study provide dramatic scientific confirmation of the conclusion reached by purely philosophical argument alone that the universe began to exist. So in my work, there are these four independent um, arguments in support of the second premise, the universe began to exist. From those two premises, it follows that therefore the universe has a cause. And one can then do a conceptual analysis of what it is to be a cause of the universe. And a number of very theologically striking properties come out of such an analysis. The argument leads, I think, to the existence of a first, 
uncaused, beginningless, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, enormously powerful, personal creator of the universe, which is, I think, a core conception of what we mean by God. Well, thank you for that summary, Dr. Craig. So let's turn into just some open dialogue about this argument. What are the merits of it? And maybe what are some uh, some good objections to this argument? So Scott, take us away. Let's uh, let's just get into some good some good dialogue. Uh, so cool, so cool. Um, well, I, just off the bat, I just uh, I want to say a couple of things. One is that um, clearly, if there were ever proof of God's existence, it's the fact that I'm sitting here right now. Uh, I. <laughs> I want to express my gratitude um, to both uh, Cameron for arranging this dialogue and to Dr. Craig for uh, his generosity with his time and the clear leap of faith, uh, you know, cards on the table. I'm a soap actor and I have no philosophical training. So it's a leap of faith on, on Dr. Craig's part that this uh, is not going to be a waste. Um, I, I recognize what a rare privilege this is. Uh, I recognize that I am in the presence of a great mind who has gone toe to toe with other great minds and won often. So, uh, so my highest aspiration here is not to win a debate. That would be pretty foolish of me. Um, but to create a, a, a document together, um, that, that sort of maps out the, the assumptions and intuitions that can cause reasonable people to disagree about whether the universe is something that has a cause. Um, and, and, and this dialogue may include me hearing for the very first time uh, uh, answers to my objections that are totally satisfying. You know, I, 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 I don't know what the response is to some of what I'm going to say here today. And uh, to me, that's very exciting. Okay, so that's, that's all. I just wanted to get that out of the way, out of the way and say that. Um, uh, Dr. Craig, I, I, if it's okay with you, I would like to, I'm genuinely agnostic on the truth of the second uh -huh. premise, whether the universe began to exist. And so I would like to grant uh, for the sake of argument that the second premise is in fact true, that the universe did begin to exist, because I think that will corral us over to the first premise, which I think is um, one more interesting to me, I think you can just do so much with it. Uh, and I think it's under scrutinized. Um, so that's, uh, I, I would like to do that. And as I understand it, uh, you have three defenses for your first premise. Um, one is uh, a sort of uh, inductive argument, right? I mean, you, you, you look around the world, things have causes, there appears to be no exception to this rule. By the way, Dr. Craig, if at any point I'm misrepresenting you or I've got you wrong, uh, I prefer that you actually interrupt me because I don't want to right. talk past you a second longer than I have to. Uh, the second okay. argument, as I understand it, is like in, in it, you could call it like a chaos argument, right? It's in the reductio family and it's sort of like, well, okay, if, if that first premise is false, then it becomes inexplicable why anything and everything doesn't just pop into being uncaused out of nothing, right? Um, and then the third argument, as I understand it, is a sort of appeal to our intuitions. We have this deeply held metaphysical intuition that uh, out of nothing, nothing comes. And um, I was hoping that I could tackle the first, the inductive uh, argument first, because um, I think that I can offer, I think that induction doesn't get you there uh, all the way to 
uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. And I think I can show that by offering an alternative causal principle that I just made up, um, but, but which I believe enjoys exactly as much empirical support. Uh, and uh, I'll call that, uh, I'll call it the double causal principle, right? So here, here's, my, here's my principle. Um, whatever has an efficient cause of its existence has a material cause. And I think you, you can take that and you can sort of make it into a, a um, parody Kalam argument, right? So that's the first premise. You can have a second premise that's something like the universe has no material cause, conclusion, therefore the universe has no efficient cause of its existence. And if I can succeed in showing that there's symmetry here, right? Because th this is, I believe that this, this uh, principle enjoys as much empirical support, but that you would reject it, right? You have reasons for rejecting this. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that would show that we need a tiebreaker, right? And then we could, if I'm successful in that, we could move on to some of your other arguments, which are also really interesting. All right. Um, let me ask you a question, Scott. Sure. To begin, do you think that the causal premise of the argument is false or simply that it's unproven? Uh, I, I, I think that it's false. Uh, I really? Think that, yeah, I, I think that it's false because, well, so when I think about causality, you know, when I kind of do an, an armchair analysis of what causality is, it appears to have all these features, right? Um, it, it, uh, it appears to be a temporal and spatial process. It appears to take place within the, by an interaction of an efficient cause with a material cause within time and space. Um, I think something that something begins to exist only if there was a point in time before it existed, where, where, where it didn't exist yet, right? There's all these features of causality as we observe it in the empirical world that I think can't be exported to something like the universe, which is defined as the totality of, of material reality. Okay, well, now, now wait, though. Um, that would not necessarily mean that the causal premise is false. Uh, I mean, that's not a proof of its falsehood. You don't think, do you, that things can just pop into existence uncaused? No, 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 certainly not. So I, I don't think that within the space-time universe, I, I think that, so here, I guess what I would say here is that I think that the scope of the causal principle uh -huh. is physical right. and not metaphysical, right? I, okay. I uh, yeah, exactly. I th so I, th I don't think, I think once you get to something like the totality of time and space itself, the causal principle yes. breaks down. And I don't think we have good enough reasons for thinking it would apply to the universe itself. Right. Okay. Now that that's quite different. That's not uh, an attack so much um, on the idea that something that begins to exist as a cause as the scope of the principle that you don't want to allow it to apply to the universe itself. Now, there, I think one would want to hear what good reasons would disqualify the universe from lying within the scope of this principle. Um, what is it about the universe that it would allow it to come into being uncaused from nothing, but that things within space and time couldn't do that? I can't think of any germane feature of the universe that would make it plausible that the entire universe could just come into being uncaused. Now, you did mention one. You said anything that 
Well, that's not even right. You, I was going to say, you said anything that begins to exist, there has to be a time before it. Yeah, that, that's, which it it's did not, that not exist. But that's an attack on the second premise, not the first one. Um, and I think that that principle is false anyway. It would preclude that time had a beginning. If you say that for something to begin to exist, there has to be a time before it during which it did not exist, that would mean that time could never begin to exist because it would be a self-contradiction to say there was a time before time at which time did not exist. And yet this is commonplace in contemporary cosmology to talk about the beginning of time and, and space. So I think all you have to do is to say that something begins to exist at a time t if there is no time earlier than t at which that thing exists. And that would allow time to begin to exist without being self-contradictory, and it would also say that um, things do begin to exist without there being this sort of empty time before they come into being. So I don't think that principle applied to the universe would be disqualifying for the universe to lie within the scope of the causal premise. Right. So I, I should clarify some things here. So so it's not it's not that that's my argument, right? My argument here or, or my objection here is not that um, the universe didn't begin to exist because there was no time you know, prior to the universe's existence. What I was trying to do there was show that there are there are all these features of of mm -hmm. something being caused to exist within our empirical experience of the world that you actually have to sacrifice. You have to jettison those features when it comes to the universe. So for example, when we see things beginning to exist or when we see things caused to exist, we see that it's by the interaction of an efficient cause with a material cause. We see that it's, it's, uh, it takes place within time and space. There is also this, what, what to me intuitively seems an essential to causality is the affect-effect relationship, right? So you have, uh, you know, you have a cause which, which affects something. And from the interaction yes. of the first two, you have the effect, right? And so that you have to get rid of, you know, when it comes to something like creatio ex nihilo. So I'm saying that there, there are all these features of causality as we know it that to me seem essential, right? Uh, and you mm -hmm. would disagree with that. You would say, well, no, those, th those things are clearly not essential because we need a cause of the universe and you can't have, uh, you know, you can't have time before time, you can't have space before space and so on and so forth. So we clearly have different intuitions about what aspects of our empirical experience of the world we have to get rid of, we have to sacrifice. That was the point I was making there. Yes. Um, now, what I would say with respect to everything that has an efficient cause also has a material cause, that does have very powerful inductive evidence. There's no doubt about it. Um, but the question is whether or not this is simply a common feature of our experience or whether this is an essential feature of efficient causality, that it always acts on a material cause. And uh, I think probably we could find counterexamples even within the realm of our experience as to when we do have efficient causes operating without material causes. And the most evident of these would be when the cause is an intellectual agent or mind, 
who produces thoughts. Uh, in that case, you have causality by a personal agent um, of mental events, uh, but one doesn't need to have, or they're not, uh, they don't have any sort of material cause. Thoughts are not constituted out of matter or stuff. And so uh, that would provide a counterexample to the claim that efficient causes are necessarily, rather than simply commonly, accompanied by material causes. Yes, yes. So, so yeah, there's some there's some ambiguity with respect to the phrase material cause, and and the 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 sense in which I understand it, which I think is the Aristotelian sense, is that the material cause it's not a synonym for physical cause. So I want to be, I, I, that, that seems like an equivocation to me, right? The material cause does not necessarily mean cause that is physical in nature, cause that is made out of matter and energy. As I understand it, the material cause of a thing is just the stuff out of which it was formed, physical or otherwise. And so I'm stipulating that that's what I mean when I say material cause. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, that isn't the classic understanding. I mean, for Aristotle, prime matter was the material cause of which things are made. So it was a very physical notion. If you allow that thoughts have material causes, well, then what's the problem with divine causation of the world? Because God is a personal agent who has thoughts and has will and intentionality, and he can will that the world exists, and as an omnipotent being, the world comes into being. So, I mean, if that's what you mean by a material cause, then that principle isn't sacrificed in having a transcendent cause of the universe. So, um, one thing that I believe that you and I have in common is that we would both identify as nominalists, um, and and yeah. as I uh, yeah as I understand. Uh, the Kalam cosmological argument. What we're really talking about here is is the beginning of existing of concreta, right? We're not talking about yes. abstractions. We're not talking about events. Uh, at, we're not talking about mental events such as thoughts or concepts. Um, so we're not talking about universals. We're not talking about numbers. We're talking about concrete objects, right? Uh, and right. so when I say what whatever whatever I'm, I'm really saying whatever concrete thing that has an efficient cause of its existence has a material cause of its existence right um and so the uh -huh. the uh the universe is not like a thought right the universe is a, is a concrete object and and in our experience of the world when we see concrete objects begin to exist it's it's always by the interaction of an efficient cause with a material cause in our experience Yes. Well, uh oh, I, I think I lost your audio. Yeah, Dr. Craig, we lost your audio for just a second. So uh, just okay. repeat the last thing you said. Oh, yeah, you're good. Well, I, I, I was just going to comment that that would at best show that this is a common feature of mundane causes rather than that this is an essential feature of causality as such. Uh, it seems to me that if you have a personal agent who transcends the world, that that agent can, by thinking, bring into reality concrete objects like the universe. 
Now, one of the difficulties with the argument, Scott, that you're propounding, it seems to me, would be that it leads to a sort of double absurdity. In the case of the universe, if the universe began to exist, then on the view you're suggesting, it would have neither an efficient cause nor a material cause. On my view, at least it has an efficient cause that explains why it comes into being, even though it doesn't have a material cause as you define the term. And so while I grant you that uh, inductively, our common experience shows that efficient causes um, work in cooperation with material causes, to deny that with respect to the beginning of the universe leads to a situation that far from being more plausible than my view is doubly absurd because it says the universe came into being with neither an efficient nor a material cause. Yeah, I, I appreciate that argument. I, 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 my view is that that commits a, a kind of category error. It's it's viewing an a causal beginning through the lens of causality, right? So an analogy would be, you know, it, hitting a home run without a ball is absurd, but hitting a home run without a bat or a ball is doubly absurd, right? You know, a, a, a uh -huh. the universe being likewise the universe being caused to exist without a material cause is absurd, but without an efficient and material cause is doubly absurd. The, the problem is that I'm not claiming to have hit a home run, and I'm not claiming that the universe was caused. So you would have a, a it would be doubly absurd if you're positing that the universe was caused to exist without an efficient cause or a material cause. But I'm not positing that the universe was caused to exist in the no. first place, so I'm not claiming to have hit a home run either. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's a, a pertinent analogy. The home run here is the beginning of the universe, and you do believe that the universe exists, uh, existed in the past, and for the sake of argument, began to exist. So you've got the ball going over the fence, on your view. Now, the question is, is there a causal explanation of that? Uh, and I would say that it's more plausible to say it's got an efficient cause that produces it than to say it has no cause at all, that it's completely acausal, which is what you're committed to. So, I, yeah, I, I disagree that the, the home run here is that the universe began to exist. If, if the home run here is that the universe began to exist and we're saying yes. it's absurd that it didn't have an efficient cause and doubly absurd that it didn't have a material cause, then you're begging the question in favor of the universe requiring a cause. But if you say that the what the home run here is that the universe was caused to exist without an efficient cause or a material cause, then you get your double absurdity. But otherwise, you're just assuming yeah, the truth of the conclusion that the universe needed a cause, to my ear. Well, but, but look at your argument. Your argument is that in the case of the universe, I'm positing an efficient cause without a material cause. And I'm suggesting that while that's unusual, you've not shown any sort of absurdity in it. You've just shown that that's not the way mundane causes work. But that leads to the absurdity that something came into being out of nothing. And that's contrary to the first argument that I give for the causal principle is that it's metaphysically impossible that being should come from non-being. And so there needs to be 
some sort of cause. In fact, you know, Scott, if you look at the argument, the argument doesn't really specify what sort of cause the universe has. It, it just says whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. So the universe has to have some kind of cause. And then we can investigate, well, what kind of cause was it? It was certainly efficient. Was it also material? Well, no, it can't be that because all matter and energy came into being at the beginning of the universe. So, well, but again, that's that's treating material cause like a physical cause, right? You, you could have had God creating the mm -hmm. universe out of some non-physical material cause, some ectoplasm or some, you know, well, some, some you better not existing stuff. You'd better not admit that or your argument goes by the board because then that's what I could say. Well, yeah, but you believe in the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo, so you wouldn't say that the universe has a material cause of its existence. I think that no, would be... Theologically, I wouldn't say that, no. Right, right. But, but the, the point is that the argument itself doesn't tell you what kind of cause the universe has. It's only when you get to the conclusion and you, you analyze, well, what is it to be a cause of space and time, matter and energy, that you get to the conclusion that this doesn't have a material cause in the typical sense. And so it, it, it forces you to adopt this very peculiar view that here we have a case of efficient causality without material causality. And all you're able to show against that is that that's unusual, but not that there's any kind of conceptual problem with that. Right. So I think that there's parody here, right? So, uh, you know, on your view, when it comes to you, you saying, you know, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Well, I don't know if if things that begin to exist having causes is an essential feature of the, if having causes is an essential feature of things beginning to exist or a common feature of things beginning to exist. Likewise, on my mm -hmm. view, it's not clear that having a material cause is an essential feature of things being caused to exist or or uh, mm -hmm. a, an accidental or a common feature, as you put it. One, one thing that I, I always took note of in your defense of your argument is that you do, you know, it, um, your, your first premise is ambiguous with respect to whether that cause has to be efficient or material. And that runs afoul of my intuitions in a way to treat, to, to treat something beginning to exist as if it could have either, you know, it could have a material cause, it, 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 as long if it doesn't have an efficient cause, it should at least have a material cause. But that's strange to me, right? Like if you and I went to a museum together and, and we were looking at a beautiful marble statue and I turn to you and I say, Dr. Craig, what caused this statue to begin existing? And you say marble. You know, I, I wouldn't feel like you had answered my question because material causes uh -huh. are not really what we're thinking about when we say that such and such was caused to exist. And so it seems strange to me if you can have something beginning to exist, if your argument allows for something to begin existing with a material cause without an efficient cause, to borrow some of your phrasing, it becomes inexplicable why things don't just begin ex to exist with material causes without efficient causes all the time, right? You, you would need an explanation for why that is. Uh-huh. Um... Well, that, that's an interesting point, um, whether something could have a material cause, but not an efficient cause. 
Um, but again, that's not germane to the case at hand, because in the case at hand, with the universe beginning to exist, there, there can't be a material cause in the normal sense of the word. And so the alternative, it seems to me, Scott, is you've either got to deny that the universe began to exist, or you've got to say that it came into being without a cause. And when I think of those alternatives, it seems to me more plausible to deny that the universe began to exist than to say the universe came into being without a cause. To me, that that's just metaphysically yeah. absurd. Yeah, it's because you and I have radically different intuitions about this, right? About what is essential to causality as we understand it. To me, to say that, that a, a causal event took place you know, the creation of the universe, for example, we don't have to call it an event because that presupposes a sort of sequence, whatever you want to call it. But to say that a uh -huh. something was caused uh, in the absence of, you know, the interaction of an efficient cause with a material cause. I mean, the, the idea here would be that that an effect was produced without anything anywhere having been affected. Right. And that that aspect of causality, as I understand it, intuitionally it is indispensable right so to, to me that mm -hmm. is a higher to borrow to borrow a phrase that you've used that i find incredibly useful that is a higher intellectual price tag than just saying listen for all we know the scope of the causal principle is simply physical and not metaphysical because the universe is not the kind of thing that could have a cause as we understand causes Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think we just have a real uh, disagreement here uh, on bedrock metaphysical yeah. principles. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Where would you like to, to go from here? <laughs> yeah, Matt, that I didn't expect to get to a, a disagreement so quickly. Should we turn to the to the other? We could also talk about uh, Scott. I, I don't know how developed your thoughts are on this, but the uh, the the move that's made after the conclusion is reached there's a cause of the universe and we do this kind of conceptual analysis. Um, I'm sure that you disagree with that. We could, we could turn there if you'd like to, to stick here and uh, talk about some other objections to premise one. How, how would you like to? I would feel disingenuous um, uh, j j taking on the argument about whether if the universe has a cause it, that cause is a, a person, you know, an omnipotent omniscient person, because I just, what I can't get around is the idea of something like the universe having a cause, right? So I, I, I can't, um, I, I, I don't even think that much about that because I'm, I'm still stuck. You know, I, I, if I'm like this, you know, if I were this perfectly neutral, you know, perfectly rational audience to the Kalam cosmological argument, um, I, I imagine somebody going, okay, but I, I still don't understand why we should think that something like the universe itself, you know, that the totality of space and time, which, you know, by definition exists at all temporal points, by definition, you know, has literally always existed, needs a cause. Um, and there's different ways to unpack that. You know, you can say that the universe exists necessarily. You can say it's a contingent brute fact. I understand that there's ways of looking at it in terms of A and B theory of time. But the one thing that you can't say is that the universe you know, popped into existence or came from nothing. That that language to my ear is is misleading and paints a picture much like the one, you know, of the tiger popping into existence in my living room behind me right here, right? Well, our intuitions about that are pretty solid, 
but I don't think that can be exported to something that has literally always existed. Well, I, I would disagree with that. I think on a tensed theory of time, according to which temporal becoming is real, the universe doesn't just have a front edge, so to speak, which is its beginning in the way that a yardstick, say, has a front edge at the initial inch. Rather, on a tense theory of time, that yardstick comes into being. Uh, it, it, and in that sense, it pops into being uh, without a cause. That's what one means when one says from nothing. And that contradicts, I think, one of the most ancient and deeply rooted metaphysical principles of Western philosophy that goes all the way back to Parmenides, that being only comes from being, uh, and that therefore something cannot come from nothing. And if, if to avoid the argument's conclusion, we've got to believe that something, in this case the entire universe, just came into being for no reason at all, no explanation. That just seems to me to be unbelievable. So maybe you and, could... and you know I'm not. Go I'm, ahead, sorry. I'm not alone on this. Uh, I wanted to quote for you a passage from David Hume of all people, in a letter he wrote to John Stuart, um, in 1754. Uh, in which Hume said this, but allow me to tell you that I have never asserted so absurd a proposition as that anything might arise without a cause. I only maintained that our certainty of the falsehood of that proposition proceeded neither from intuition nor demonstration, but from another source. In other words, what Hume was saying was, that he couldn't prove the causal principle that anything that begins to exist has a cause, but he regarded its denial as metaphysically absurd, and so he believed the, the principle. And I would be very happy to simply say that the causal principle is a metaphysical assumption of the Kalam cosmological argument, um, and so that anyone who, who shares this assumption should follow the argument to where it leads that there is a cause of the universe. Right. Well, I, if I understand the quote correctly, I, I'm certainly in agreement with Hume that it is an absurd proposition to think that anything could come into existence uncaused. I, I don't believe that. I don't think that objects within the physical universe could come to uh, exist uncaused. And so I, cer I certainly don't believe anything could come into existence uncaused. Um, Oh, you just, you made another point right after that, that was really interesting. And I already forgot it. This is why I'm not a good note taker. No. Anyway. Um, but what you do think is that something can come into existence without a cause, namely a universe. Well, okay. So let me ask, okay. So, so why, is there an argument for why we should think that the scope of the causal principle is metaphysical and not merely yes. physical? That, that's a really good point, because it's not a physical principle. I, I, I think this is so important. It is a metaphysical principle, as I say, that underlies Western philosophy all the way back to the pre-Socratics. It's not like Boyle's laws 
uh, or the second law or the conservation laws of thermodynamics or laws of gravitation. It's not a physical law that simply governs our physical space-time arena. But this is a metaphysical principle that being doesn't come from non-being and that therefore nothing can come into existence from nothing. Something comes into being only from something else. There needs to be um, a cause of something coming into being. So what, what folks like yourself have to do is to try to provide some reason for restricting the causal principle to this physical universe or or within the physical universe, I mean, but deny its applicability to the universe as such. Right, and right. Seems and to and be I think to be a fundamental are... misunderstanding. So, so I think that when, when somebody um, objects to the causal principle by saying, you know, this is something that applies to, you know, things within the universe, the interaction of efficient and material causes within time and space, um, that what they're doing there is challenging the assumption that the scope of the causal principle is in fact metaphysical and not physical. Right. So to my ear, it does no right. good to respond to that objection by reasserting the very thing being questioned, which is that the scope of the causal principle is metaphysical. That that sounds question begging to me. So So my question to you is why should we think that the scope of the causal principle is metaphysical? Mm-hmm. After all, we've only experience with you know yeah. things within the universe anyway well again because it is stated as a metaphysical principle it's not stated as a merely physical principle the way a law of nature is so the person who wants to restrict the scope of the principle needs to provide some sort of justification as i think you've tried to do with your argument about material causation but I think that leaves us, as I say, with an absurd situation. Um, so the, the principle is, is simply, I mean, historically, uh, it's, it's been part of metaphysics. It's not part of science. It's presupposed, I suppose, by science. But the principle of it itself is part of and always has been part of metaphysics. Well, you could rephrase what I'm saying here in a way that's amenable to that, right? You could say, you know, we, there, there's a lot of daylight between, you know, whatever begins to exist has a cause and, you know, it being inexplicable why anything and everything doesn't just pop into being uncaused out of nothing, right? Okay, so no, wait, that, that's the second argument, though, that we haven't gotten yes, to yet. That's true. That's true. But what, what, um, the only reason I mentioned that is because I, I want to say that there there are plenty of alternatives here, right? It could be the case that um, the causal principle, as stated, is false. It could be true that there's an, uh, you know, a, a, a different causal principle is true instead, but this causal principle is false. For example, Graham Oppie has a causal principle he offers that's that all non-initial things that begin to exist uh, have a cause. It could be true that whatever begins to exist has a cause <laughs> yeah. within time and space. You know, whatever begins to exist within time and space has a cause. There, there, there are many possibilities for why the causal principle could be false that don't commit us to thinking that there's just chaos. You know what I mean? Well, now I would agree with both of the principles that you just stated, that all non-initial things have a cause or everything that begins within space and time has a cause. But the point is that those more restricted versions of the principle don't justify a denial 
of the broader principle that um, being cannot come from non-being, that something cannot come from nothing. I, I just can't. Well, I mean, you say you believe that, I guess, and and that if that's what you believe, fine. <laughs> um, but I could, I could never. I'm like I'm more like David Hume, you know. I could never believe what to me seems so absurd is that things could come into being without being caused. Let me let me ask you a very well. No, no, never mind. Okay, go ahead. You go ahead. Oh no! Well, now oh, I want to know the question. Oh no, yeah, me too. Uh, all right. <laughs> I was going to ask Scott. I mean, for me, this is a very personal issue, right? This is serious business. It's not just looking for an academic refutation of a proof. We're trying to here to get at reality and figure out the right, nature right. and meaning of the world. And so, I wonder. Would I be willing to stand before God on the judgment day and God were to say to me, why didn't you believe in me? And I would say, well, because I thought the universe might have popped into being uncaused out of nothing. I think God would look at me and say, you what? Uh, I'm just not prepared to do that sort of thing. Are you? Right, but I but I I reject that imagery, right? I, I don't think that's what, what by denying the causal principle, I don't I don't think that's what is entailed by it. That 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 seems wrong to me, right? That the the idea that there was this, and and perhaps you could unpack this, right? Because I don't really understand the reasoning behind this, and I admit that you know that I I don't see how you the, the universe did any coming from if, if there's no such thing as anything earlier than the universe and and we also agree that there's no such there's nothingness is not like an actual circumstance that could obtain right. it's not right. an actual state of affairs so whence cometh the universe right i mean it, it seems to me that as long as you stipulate those two things that there's no such thing as before the universe and there's no such thing as nothing mm -hmm. then the, then what do you mean when you say that the universe came from nothing. There's no nothing well, to I've, come from. I've answered that. When when I say from nothing, you mean f not from anything. Right, Th right. That's but I agree I mean. with that. When you say right. it, it came not from anything. And I think that, well, the question is, is that metaphysically absurd to think that the universe came into being not from anything? Um, well, but even, even came into being, like I would phrase it differently, right? I would just say the universe didn't come from anything. Not that the universe came from not anything. I would say the universe didn't come. It didn't do any coming. There was nothing. Well, coming is like a verb. You know what I mean? It, it creates right. an imagery it's that doesn't tensed, right. it, It's a tensed verb. And the beginning of the universe, I think, is a tensed fact. Remember my analogy of the yardstick. It's not right. just that the yeah. yardstick has a first inch, but that the yardstick came into being in the sense that it began to exist. So the verbal tense is important here on a tense theory of time, which I've gone to great efforts to defend. Um, yes, and, I, that, and I, I concede that that's not something I'm prepared to disagree with you about. You are the, the world's mm -hmm. probably foremost expert on the difference between A and B theory of time and the arguments well, between them. All, all I can say person. is that intuitively, uh, B theory seems more right to me. Um, uh -huh. uh, okay, well, that's but, 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 but I, but I also don't 
um, I don't want to, and I don't believe I am hinging my objection to the Kalam cosmological argument or the causal premise in this case uh, yeah. on B theory. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to make that mistake. Well, so far in our discussion today, if I were to summarize your position, it seems to me that your misgivings are that necessarily every efficient cause is accompanied by a material cause. And since that isn't the case at the beginning of the universe, therefore, the universe began to exist without a cause, and you're willing to simply bite the bullet and affirm that metaphysical fact. Right. And, and again, this goes back to your, your heuristic about intellectual price tags, right? Because right, that's I, right. I, I, to my ear, the hot, you know, what, what, what accepting the conclusion of the Kalam cosmological argument commits us to is, is a lot. Um, we have to, we have to accept that there are um, unembodied minds, that there are timeless yeah. persons. We have to accept that an effect can be produced without anything having been affected anywhere at all. We have to accept, we, we have to sacrifice a lot of features of causality as we understand it. So, so if all these things are true, I just, I no, just, wait, wait, I, I, I don't want to, I want to disagree okay. with that. You, you don't have to sacrifice a lot of features of causality. You would just say, that some common features of causality are not necessarily essential to causality. But those other elements you mentioned are quite right. That's right. Um, so, and so right, it's, but I think for our listeners, they have to assess where does the higher price tag lie? Um, right. And so uh, and, you know, conversely, um, I, I think the only bullet that I'm really biting is that be things beginning to exist having causes is a common feature, an extremely common feature, but it can't possibly apply to everything, right? It, co it couldn't apply to the universe itself for, for some of the reasons that I've, I've given. Mm -hmm. that, to me, that doesn't seem like a huge bullet to bite, especially given you know, how ill-equipped we are no. in, in terms of our intuitions about how the world really works. Well, I think that the big bullet that you bite, Scott, is that as a result of your argument, you're stuck with the universe coming into existence without explanation, for no reason at all, uh, without a cause. It, it's the, the view that my friend Quentin Smith used to say, the universe came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. Uh, yeah, sort of a nice Gettysburg address right? of atheism. <laughs> well, yeah, that does seem to me the bullet you're going to bite, uh, given your your principle that every efficient cause must have a material cause as an accompaniment, and I would rather let that go by the board than give up the idea that the universe beginning had to have some sort of explanation. Yeah, it seems to me it's, mind, sometimes it's, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go we've ahead. only got about 10 minutes left. And I was thinking that it might be fun to turn to the second argument that, that Dr. Yeah. Craig normally gives. I would uh, like so to do that, yeah, that for about 10 minutes. It is great. a follow-up yeah, yeah. argument, Scott, to the first one we've been talking about. Suppose you're willing with Scott to bite the bullet and say things can come into being without 
a cause or things can begin to exist without a cause, to put it more neutrally. Then, as Arthur Pryor pointed out, you face this very difficult question. Why is it only universes that come into being without causes? Why can't Beethoven or bicycles or root beer or anything just come into being or begin to exist without a cause? Once you allow an exception to the principle that everything that begins to exist has a cause, then there's no answer, it seems to me, to that question. And yet, obviously, things aren't popping into being uncaused all the time around us. Yeah, yeah. I I have two thoughts about that. Um, One is that it it seems to me that we can make a kind of parody argument on the other side of that. Like your defense of, of the Kalam cosmological argument entails that uh, it, it's not impossible for events to occur uncaused, right? And so now to me, that really runs afoul of my intuitions, right? That events, you know, events can just happen uh-huh. spontaneously uncaused. And so I, I would ask the same kind of question. I would say, well, if it's possible for one event to occur uncaused, it becomes inexplicable why anything and anything doesn't just occur. Like, why isn't my pen just floating up in the air yeah. and spontaneously combusting? Why aren't windows breaking okay. uncaused all the time? Now, let me let me interrupt at this point, Scott, and say that sure. while the causal premise is formulated in terms of substances rather than events, that everything that begins to exist has a cause, it doesn't deny that every event has a cause. It, it just says I'm not committed to that. The argument doesn't commit me to that. If I were to deny that every event has a cause, it would probably be for reasons of libertarian freedom, namely right. that I'm not a determinist. And so I think that agents, personal agents, can freely bring about causes without being determined to do so. Uh, but that's a quite different debate with respect to libertarian freedom, the the Kalam argument is just neutral as to whether every event has a cause. So there's no parity available there. Well, right. But the, the lesson, as, as I take it here, is that, well, here you have an example of something, you know, in this case, events, you know, you, if you allow for ah. mental events, you know, right. And, and, and yet clearly you agree that just because mental events, like in, in you know, in the context of libertarian free will, can and can occur without a cause, it's not inexplicable why other events, like my pen floating in the air, uh, can happen without mm-hmm. a cause, right? So, so clearly, it doesn't follow that just be if 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 it's the case that the universe is uncaused, then we would expect to see things, objects within the universe, popping into existence uncaused uh, all the time. Well, now libertarians would typically affirm agent causation with respect to acts of free will. It's not as though acts of free will just happen uh, randomly. There, There is an agent there who can freely choose to do this or that. But in the case of the universe beginning to exist, see, there's nothing prior to it. Uh, on, on atheism, there's, there's nothing there. So... If that can happen without a cause, anything should be able to happen without a cause because there's nothing to restrict it. Yeah. See, see, I think of it the opposite way, right? I think, okay, if, if, if there were time before the universe, you've got like nothing happening, nothing happening, nothing happening, and then pop universe that I would completely deny that that's possible. Right. But we're not talking about, 
a circumstance like that. We're just talking about the universe just being there uh, at all temporal points, right? And again, I know that that goes into A theory and B theory, and I'm not prepared yeah, to Yeah, it does, that because, argument, you know, the, the, the Kalam argument is not committed as such to saying that time began at the creation of the first event. Um, you know, people like Alan Padgett and Richard Swinburne, John Lucas and others have dis uh, discussed the idea that there could be a kind of non-metric time prior to the moment of creation. So I try to open alternatives to people rather than close them off. And I'm open to the idea that there was time prior to the creation of the physical universe. I, I don't think there was, but I, I'm not prepared to say that that's impossible. Well, and in I, that case, you need to ask yourself, you. how do you... Yeah, I mean, if you think that, suppose you think there was time prior to the beginning of the universe. Yeah, then, then I would certainly agree. In that case, you ought to say that the universe began, that the universe had a cause. Yeah, yeah. So, Scott, I, I mean, wait a minute. Now, look, look what you've just done. I mean, I think you've backed yourself into theism here because on the view that time precedes the beginning of the universe, you admit that the beginning of the universe would require a transcendent cause. And that's right. exactly what people like Richard Swinburne, John Lucas, Alan Padgett, and others believe. So I think that you should become a theist. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I don't find that objectionable, but I think there are, there, we don't have time to go into it, but I think there are implications of that that are, that are obviously problematic. Well, one question I, I wanted to ask you for clarification is when you make this argument that it becomes inexplicable, are, are you making a, a, a would kind of argument or a could kind of argument? Are you saying that if the universe is uncaused, then we would see things popping into being within the universe or, or that it's possible? Well, I think I'm saying would, that ah. if the universe can come into being, begin to exist without any cause at all, then it's inexplicable why anything and everything wouldn't pop into being without so, a, a cause. Because yeah, so there's nothing that... to constrain it. You see, there's nothing to constrain coming into being because there is no universe prior to the universe to make it the case that only universes can pop into being uncaused out of nothing. Well, okay, so so I do want to say, to, to say that something is inexplicable, I mean, that you're, you're not just saying, yeah. you're not just asking me what's the explanation. You're actually, you're making a very ambitious claim here, which is that an explanation is impossible. I think that shifts the burden back onto you to show that that such an explanation is literally impossible. Now, here, here, here's, here's an analogy, right? Say I push the button. Yeah, okay, I thought I did that. <laughs> oh, oh, by my argument that there is nothing prior to the existence of the thing to constrain what sort of thing can come into being without a cause. Oh, oh so, yes. So let me answer that. Yes, yes. So, yeah, okay. so suppose, um, suppose I push a button for an elevator and the elevator door is open and I see that the elevator is at maximum capacity. There's 15 people in there and I can't fit. I can't get on the elevator. Now, let's say the elevator is analogous to the universe, right? The explanation of why I'm not getting onto the elevator is about facts in the elevator 
right? It's facts that have to do with what's already in the elevator, not facts about what's outside the elevator. It's not a perfect analogy, but outside the elevator would be the nothingness. So that this, this argument that nothingness has, it's not discriminatory, excuse me, it, it has no potential. I don't think it's the nothingness part, it's the nothingness side that's stopping something from coming into being. It's the something that's stopping something from coming but the, into the being. The problem is, Scott, you've got to have something that it's explanatorily prior to the packed elevator. You can't use the packed elevator to explain it because you, that's already there. You need something that is explanatorily prior to the thing that begins to exist. And there isn't any such thing on an atheistic view. Well, that's just a different question, though. We can ask the question, why are there all no. these people? Why is there an elevator and why are there so many people in the elevator? But the question that you were asking, well, the, the claim that you were making is that it's impossible to explain why things don't pop into being uncaused all the time within the universe. And I'm saying it's it's hardly impossible to explain that. Here are all these alternatives. It could be that the causal principle as phrased is false and some other causal principle is true instead. It could be the Graham-Oppie's causal principle. Each no, 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 wait, that would, that. no, that wouldn't work. That, that, that's the genius of this second argument. The second argument is willing to allow you that things can pop into being uncaused out of nothing. But it demands, if that is possible, then why doesn't just anything and everything pop into being uncaused? That's Arthur Pryor's argument. And I think it's such a powerful second step because, as I say, it allows you to say things can come into being uncaused out of nothing, but then it asks why that isn't the case for everything. And the reason right. an explanation is impossible is because there isn't anything explanatorily prior to those things that would yeah. restrict what can come into being uncaused. I hate, I hate to do this. We are at the hour mark and ah. that is the, the time that we could okay. give to, to Dr. Craig. I appreciate both Thank of you, you guys for coming on. Dr. Craig, is there anything that you'd like to say as we sort of yes, I would out. like to say that it is wonderful to chat with someone who has thought so seriously and thoroughly uh, about these considerations. I I lie awake at night thinking about these things, and I'll bet Scott does too. So thank you, Scott, for this engaging discussion today. Uh, I I can't tell you how much that means to me. I have so enjoyed this conversation. And uh, again, I thank you for your time and your generosity and your charity. And uh, this, this has been great. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.